Section 1 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cynthia Moyer. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 4. Section 1. The Publican's Dream. By John and Michael Bannim. Of the writers who have won esteem by telling the pathetic stories of their country's people, the names of John and Michael Bannim are ranked among the Irish Gale, not lower than that of Sir Walter Scott among the British Gale. The works of the Bannim brothers continued the same sad and fascinating story of the mere Irish, which Maria Edgeworth and Lady Morgan had laid to the hearts of English readers in the late eighteenth and early nineteenth century days. The Bannim family was one of those which belonged to the class of middlemen, people so designated in Ireland who were neither rich nor poor, but in the fortunate mean. The family home was in the historic town of Kilkenny, famous alike for its fighting confederation and its fighting cats. Here Michael was born, August 5th, 1796, and John, April 3rd, 1798. Michael lived to a green old age, and survived his younger brother John twenty-eight years, less seventeen days. He died at Booterstown, August 30th, 1874. The first stories of this brotherly collaboration in letters appeared in 1825 without mark of authorship as recitals contributed for instruction and amusement about the hearthstone of an Irish household called the O'Hara family. The minor chords of the soft music of the Gaelic English as it fell from the tongues of Irish lads and lasses, whether in note of sorrow or of sport, had already begun to touch with winsome tenderness the stolid Saxon hearts, when that idyll of their country's penal days, the bit o'writin, was sent out from the O'Hara fireside. The almost instantaneous success and popularity of their first stories speedily broke down the anonymity of the Banims, and publishers became eager and gain-giving. About two dozen stories were published before the death of John in 1842. The best known of them, in addition to the one already mentioned, are the Boyne Water, the Croppie, and Father Connell. The fact that during the long survival of Michael no more of the Banim stories appeared 
is sometimes called in as evidence that the latter had little to do with the writing of the series michael and john it was well known had worked lovingly together and michael claimed a part in thirteen of the tales without excluding his brother from joint authorship exactly what each wrote of the joint productions has never been known a single dramatic work of the bannon brothers has attained to a position in the standard drama the play of damon and pythias a free adaptation from an italian original written by john bannon at the instance of richard lalor Scheele. the songs are also attributed to john it is but just to say that the great emigration to the united states which absorbed the irish during the forties and fifties depreciated the sale of such works as those of the bannams to the lowest point and michael had good reason aside from the loss of his brother's aid to lay down his pen the audience of the irish storyteller had gone away across the great western sea there was nothing to do but sit by the lonesome hearth and await one's own to-morrow for the voyage of the greater sea the publican's dream from the bit o writin and other tales the fair day had passed over in a little straggling town in the southeast of ireland and was succeeded by a languor proportioned to the wild excitement it never failed to create but of all in the village its publicans suffered most under the reaction of great bustle few of their houses appeared open at broad noon and some the envy of their competitors continued closed even after that late hour of these latter many were of the very humblest kind little cabins in fact skirting the outlets of the village or standing alone on the roadside a good distance beyond it about two o'clock upon the day in question a house of entertainment for man and horse the very last of the description noticed to be found between the village and the wild tract of mountain country adjacent to it was opened by the proprietress who had that moment arisen from bed the cabin consisted of only two apartments and scarce more than nominally even of two for the half-plastered wicker and straw partition which professed to cut off a sleeping nook from the whole area enclosed by the clay walls was little higher than a tall man and moreover chinky and porous in many places let the assumed distinction be here allowed to stand however while the reader casts his eyes around what was sometimes called the kitchen sometimes the tap-room sometimes the dancing-floor forms which had run by the walls and planks by way of tables which had been propped before them were turned topsy-turvy 
and in some instances broken. Pewter pots and pints, battered and bruised, or squeezed together and flattened, and fragments of twisted glass tumblers lay beside them. The clay floor was scraped with brogue nails and indented with the heel of that primitive footgear in token of the energetic dancing which had lately been performed upon it. In a corner still appeared, capsized, however, an empty eight-gallon beer-barrel, recently the piper's throne, whence his bag had blown forth the inspiring storms of jigs and reels, which prompted to more antics than ever did a bag of the laughing-gas. Among the yellow turf ashes of the hearth lay on its side an old blackened tin kettle without a spout, a principal utensil in brewing scalding water for the manufacture of whiskey punch and its soft and yet warm bed was shared by a red cat who had stolen in from his own orgies through some cranny since daybreak the single four-paned window of the apartment remained veiled by its rough shutter that turned on leather hinges but down the wide yawning chimney came sufficient light to reveal the objects here described the proprietress opened her back door. She was a woman of about forty, of a robust, large-boned figure, with broad, rosy visage, dark, handsome eyes, and a well-cut nose, but inheriting a mouth so wide as to proclaim her pure aboriginal Irish pedigree. After a look abroad to inhale the fresh air, and then a remonstrance ending in a kick with the hungry pig who ran squeaking and grunting to demand his long-deferred breakfast she settled her cap rubbed down her proskeen coarse apron tucked and pinned up her skirts behind and saying in a loud commanding voice as she spoke into the sleeping chamber get up now at once chair i bid you vigorously, if not tidily, set about putting her tavern to rights. During her bustle the dame would stop an instant and bend her ear to listen for a stir inside the partition, but at last, losing patience, she resumed. Why, then, my heavy hatred on you, Jermulcai, is it gone into a salvan? Pleasant drowsiness. You are over again? or maybe you stole out of bed and put your hand on one of them old good-for-nothing books that makes you the laziest man that a poor woman ever had tinder one roof with her ay and that sent you out of our decent shop and house in the heart of the town below and banished us here jermokei to sell drams o whisky and pots o' beer to all the riff-raff o' the countryside instead o' the nate boots and shoes you served your honest time to she entered his or her chamber rather hoping that she might detect him luxuriantly perusing in bed one of the mutilated books a love of which or more truly a love of indolence thus manifesting itself 
had indeed chiefly caused his downfall in the world her husband however really tired after his unusual bodily efforts of the previous day only slumbered as mrs mulcahy had at first anticipated and when she had shaken and aroused him for the twentieth time that morning and scolded him until the spirit-broken blockhead whimpered nay wept or pretended to weep the dame returned to her household duties she did not neglect however to keep calling to him every half-minute until at last mr jeremiah mulcahy strode into the kitchen a tall ill-contrived figure that had once been well fitted out but that now wore its old skin like its old clothes very loosely and those old clothes were a discoloured threadbare half-polished kerzimer pair of trousers and aged superfine black coat the last relics of his former sunday finery to which had recently and incongruously been added a calfskin vest a pair of coarse sky-blue peasant's stockings and a pair of brogues his hanging cheeks and lips told together his present bad living and domestic subjection and an eye that had been blinded by the smallpox wore neither patch nor band although in better days it used to be genteelly hidden from remark an assumption of consequence now deemed incompatible with his altered condition in society oh coth oh i had such a dream he said as he made his appearance and i'll go bail you had answered coth and when do you ever go asleep without having one dream or another that pesters me off o my legs the livelong day till the night falls again to let you have another musha jer don't be ever and always such a fool and never mind the dream now but lend a hand to help me in the work o the house see the pewter there have it up man alive and take it out to the garden and sit on the big stone in the sun and make it look as well as you can after the ill usage it got last night come hurry jer go and do what i bid you he retired in silence to the garden a little patch of ground luxuriant in potatoes and a few cabbages mrs mulcahy pursued her work till her own sensations warned her that it was time to prepare her husband's morning or rather day meal for by the height of the sun it should now be many hours past noon so she put down her pot of potatoes and when they were boiled took out a wooden trencher full of them and a mug of sour milk to jer determined not to summon him from his useful occupation of restoring the pints and quarts to something of their former shape stepping through the back door and getting him in view she stopped short in silent anger his back was turned to her because of the sun and while the vessels huddled about in confusion 
seemed little the better of his latent skill and industry there he sat on his favorite round stone studiously perusing half aloud to himself some idle volume which doubtless he had smuggled into the garden in his pocket laying down her trencher and her mug mrs mulcahy stole forward on tiptoe gained his shoulder without being heard snatched the imperfect bundle of soiled pages out of his hand and hurled it into a neighbor's cabbage bed jeremiah complained in his usual half-crying tone declaring that she never could let him alone so she couldn't and he would rather list for a soger than laid such a life from year's end to year's end so he would well undo then and whistle that idle cur off with you pointing to a nondescript puppy which had lain happily coiled up at his master's feet until mrs mulcahy's appearance but that now watched her closely his ears half cocked and his eyes wide open though his position remained unaltered go along to the devil you lazy whelp you she took up a pint in which a few drops of beer remained since the previous night and drained it on the puppy's head who instantly ran off jumping sideways and yelping as loud as if some bodily injury had really visited him yes and now you begin to yowl like your master for nothing at all only because a body axes you to stir your idle legs hold your tongue you foolish baste she stooped for a stone one would think i scalded you you know you did once cough to the backbone and small blame for shuffle to be a fear to you ever since said jer this vindication of his own occasional remonstrances as well as of shuffles was founded in truth when very young just to keep him from running against her legs while she was busy over the fire mrs mulcahy certainly had emptied a ladle full of boiling potato water upon the poor puppy's back and from that moment it was only necessary to spill a drop of the coldest possible water or of any cold liquid on any part of his body and he believed he was again dreadfully scalded and ran out of the house screaming in all the fancied theories of torture with you ate your good dinner now jer mulcahy and promise to do something to help me after it mother o saints thus she interrupted herself turning towards the place where she had deposited the eulogized food see that yon unlucky bird may i never do an ill turn but there's the pig after spillin the sweet milk and now shovelin the beautiful white eyes down her throat at a mouthful jer really afflicted at this scene promised to work hard the moment he got his dinner and his spouse first procuring a pitchfork to beat the pig into her sty prepared a fresh meal for him and retired to eat her own in the house and then to continue her labor in about an hour she thought of paying him another visit of inspection when jeremiah's voice reached her ear calling out in disturbed accents cough 
Koth, Avornin, for the love of heaven, Koth, where are you? Running to him, she found her husband sitting upright, though not upon his round stone, amongst the still untouched heap of pots and pints, his pockmarked face very pale, his single eye staring, his hands clasped and shaking, and moisture on his forehead. What, she cried, the pewter just as I left it over again? Oh, Coth, Coth, don't mind that now, but speak to me kind, Coth, and comfort me. Why, what ails your jer, Avunin? affectionately taking his hand, when she saw how really agitated he was. Oh, Coth, oh, I had such a dream now, in earnest at any rate. A dream, she repeated, letting go his hand. A dream, Jermokei. So, after your good dinner, you go for to fall asleep, Jermokei, just to be ready with a new dream for me, instead of the work you came out here to do five blessed hours ago. Don't scold me now, Cot, don't a pet, only listen to me, and then say what you like. You know the lonesome little glen between the hills, on the short-cut for man or horse to Kilbrogan? Well, Coth, there I found myself in the dream, and I saw two sailors, tired after a day's hard walking, sitting before one of the big rocks that stand upright in the wild place, and they were eatin' or drinkin', I couldn't make out which, and one was a tall, strong, broad-shouldered man, and the other was strong too, but short and burly, and while they were talking very civilly to each other, lo and behold, you coth, I seen the tall man whip his knife into the little man, and then they both struggled and wrestled and screeched together till the rocks rung again, but at last the little man was a corpse, and may I never see a sight o' glory, coth, but all this was afore me as plain as you are in this garden. And since the hour I was born, Coth, I never got such a fright. And, oh, Coth, what's that now? What is it, you poor fool, you, but a customer, come at last into the kitchen, and time for us to see the face o' one this blessed day? Get up out o' that with your dreams. Don't you hear em knockin'? I'll stay here to put one vessel at lace to rights, for I see I must. Jeremiah arose, groaning, and entered the cabin through the back door. In a few seconds he hastened to his wife, more terror-stricken than he had left her, and settling his loins against the low garden wall, stared at her. Why then, duels in you, Jermokei, saints forgive me for cursing. And what's the matter with you at all at all? They're in the kitchen, he whispered. Well, and what will they take? I spoke never a word to them, Coth, nor they to me. I couldn't, and I won't, for a duke's ransom. I only saw them standing together in the dark that's coming on, behind the door, and I knew them at the first look, the tall one and the little one. With a flout at his dreams, and his cowardice, and his good-for-nothingness, the dame hurried to serve her customers. Jeremiah heard her loud voice addressing them, 
and their hoarse tones answering. She came out again for two pints to draw some beer, and commanded him to follow her and discourse the customers. He remained motionless. She returned in a short time, and fairly drove him before her into the house. He took a seat remote from his guests, with difficulty pronouncing the ordinary words of God save ye genteels, which they bluffly and heartily answered. His glances towards them were also few, yet enough to inform him that they conversed together like friends, pledging healths and shaking hands. The tall sailor abruptly asked him how far it was by the shortcut to a village where they proposed to pass the night. Kilbrogan? Jeremiah started on his seat, and his wife, after a glance and a grumble at him, was obliged to speak for her husband. They finished their beer, paid for it, put up half a loaf and a cut of bad watery cheese, saying that they might feel more hungry a few miles on than they now did, and then they arose to leave the cabin. Jeremiah glanced in great trouble around. His wife had, fortunately, disappeared. He snatched up his old hat, and, with more energy than he could himself remember, ran forward to be a short way on the road before them. They soon approached him, and then, obeying a conscientious impulse, Jeremiah saluted the smaller of the two, and requested to speak with him apart. The sailor, in evident surprise, assented. Jer vaguely cautioned him against going any farther that night, as it would be quite dark by the time he should get to the mountain pass on the by-road to Kilbrogan. His warning was made light of. He grew more earnest, asserting what was not the fact that it was a bad road, meaning one infested by robbers. Still the bluff tar paid no attention, and was turning away. "'Oh, sir, oh, stop, sir,' resumed Jeremiah, taking great courage. "'I have a thing to tell you.' And he rehearsed his dream, averring that in it he had distinctly seen the present object of his solicitude set upon and slain by his colossal companion. The listener paused a moment, first looking at Jer, and then at the ground, very gravely. But the next moment he burst into a loud, and Jeremiah thought, frightful laugh, and walked rapidly to overtake his shipmate. Jeremiah, much oppressed, returned home. Towards dawn next morning, the publican awoke in an ominous panic, and aroused his wife to listen to a loud knocking and a clamour of voices at their door. She insisted that there was no such thing, and scolded him for disturbing her sleep. A renewal of the noise, however, convinced even her incredulity, and showed that Jeremiah was right for the first time in his life at least. Both arose and hastened to answer the summons. When they unbarred the front door, a gentleman, 
surrounded by a crowd of people of the village, stood before it. He had discovered on the by-road through the hills from Kilbrogan a dead body, weltering in its gore and wearing sailor's clothes, had ridden on in alarm, had raised the village, and some of its population, recollecting to have seen Mrs. Mulcahy's visitors of the previous evening, now brought him to her house to hear what she could say on the subject. Before she could say anything, her husband fell senseless at her side, groaning dolefully. While the bystanders raised him, she clapped her hands and exalted her voice in ejaculations, as Irish women, when grieved or astonished or vexed, usually do. And now, as proud of Jeremiah's dreaming capabilities as she had before been impatient of them, rehearsed his vision of the murder, and authenticated the visit of the two sailors to her house, almost while he was in the act of making her the confidant of his prophetic ravings. The auditors stepped back in consternation, crossing themselves, smiting their breasts, and crying out, The Lord save us! The Lord have mercy upon us! Jeremiah slowly awoke from his swoon. The gentleman who had discovered the body commanded his attendants back to the lonesome glen where it lay. Poor Jeremiah fell on his knees and with tears streaming down his cheeks, prayed to be saved from such a trial. His neighbors almost forced him along. All soon gained the spot, a narrow pass between slanting piles of displaced rocks, the hills from which they had tumbled, rising brown and barren, and to a great height above and beyond them. And there, indeed, Upon the strip of verdure which formed the winding road through the defile lay the corpse of one of the sailors who had visited the publican's house the evening before. Again Jeremiah dropped on his knees at some distance from the body, exclaiming, Lord save us! Yes, oh yes, neighbors, this is the very place. Only the saints be good to us again, "'Twas the tall sailor I seen killing the little sailor, "'and here's the tall sailor murdered by the little sailor. "'Dreams go by contrary some way or another,' observed one of his neighbors, "'and Jeremiah's puzzle was resolved. Two steps were now indispensable to be taken. "'The county coroner should be summoned, "'and the murderer sought after.' The crowd parted to engage in both matters simultaneously. Evening drew on when they again met in the pass, and the first, who had gone for the coroner, returned with him a distance of near twenty miles. But the second party did not prove so successful. In fact, they had discovered no clue to the present retreat of the supposed assassin. The coroner impaneled his jury, and held his inquest under a large upright rock, bedded in the middle of the pass, such as Jeremiah said he had seen in his dream. A verdict of willful murder against the absent sailor was quickly agreed upon, but 
ere it could be recorded, all hesitated, not knowing how to individualize a man of whose name they were ignorant. The summer night had fallen upon their deliberations, and the moon arose in splendor, shining over the top of one of the high hills that enclosed the pass, so as fully to illumine the bosom of the other. During their pause, a man appeared standing upon the line of the hill thus favored by the moonlight, and every eye turned in that direction. He ran down the abrupt declivity beneath him. He gained the continued sweep of jumbled rocks which immediately walled in the little valley, springing from one to another of them with such agility and certainty that it seemed almost magical and a general whisper of fear now attested the fact of his being dressed in a straw hat, a short jacket, and loose white trousers. As he jumped from the last rock upon the sward of the pass, the spectators drew back, but he, not seeming to notice them, walked up to the corpse, which had not yet been touched, took its hand, turned up its face into the moonlight, and attentively regarded the features. Let the hand go, pushed his hat upon his forehead, glanced around him, recognized the person in authority, approached and stood still before him, and said, Here I am, Tom Mills, that killed long Harry Holmes, and there he lies. The coroner cried out to secure him, now fearing that the man's sturdiness meant further harm. No need, resumed the self-accused. Here's my bread and cheese knife, the only weapon about me. He threw it on the ground. I come back just to ax you, Commodore, to order me a cruise after poor Harry. Bless his precious eyes, wherever he is bound. You have been pursued hither? No, bless your heart, but I wouldn't pass such another watch as the last twenty-four hours for all the prize money won at Trafalgar. Tisn't in regard of not tastin' food or wettin' my lips ever since I fell foul of Harry, or of hidin' my head like a cursed animal o' the earth, and startin' if a bird only hopped nigh me. But I cannot go on livin' on this tack no longer, that's it, and the least I can say to you, Harry, my hearty. What caused your quarrel with your comrade? There was no jar or jabber betwixt us, do you see me? Not at the time, I understand you to mean, but surely you must have long owed him a grudge. No, but long loved him, and he me. Then, in heaven's name, what put the dreadful thought into your head? The devil, Commodore, the horned lubber, and another lubber to help him pointing at Jeremiah, who shrank to the skirts of the crowd. I'll tell you every word of it, Commodore, as true as a log-book. For twenty long and merry years Harry and I sailed together and worked together, through a hard gale sometimes and through hot sun another time, and never a squally word came between us till last night, and then it all came of that lubberly swipe-seller, I say again. I thought as how it was a real awful thing that a strange landsman 
before ever he laid eyes on either of us, should come to have this hair dream about us. After falling in with Harry, when the lubber and I parted company, my old mate saw I was cast down, and he told me as much in his own gruff, well-meaning way, upon which I gave him the story, laughing at it. He didn't laugh in return, but grew glum, glummer than I ever seed him, and I wondered, and fell to boxing about my thoughts, more and more. Deep sea sink that cursed thinkin' and thinkin', say I, it sends many an honest fellow out of his course. And it's hard to know the best man's mind, I thought to myself. Well, we came on the tack into these rocky parts, and Harry says to me all on a sudden, Tom, try the soundings here ahead by yourself, or let me by myself. I asked him why. No matter, says Harry again. But after what you chawed about, I don't like your company any farther till we fall in again at the next village. What, Harry, I cries, laughing heartier than ever. Are you afeard of your own mind with Tom Mills? Foe, he made answer, walking on before me, and I followed him. Yes, I kept saying to myself, he is afeard of his own mind with his old shipmate. "'Twas a darker night than this, and when I looked ahead, the devil, for I know twas he that boarded me, made me take notice what a good spot it was for Harry to fall foul of me. And then I watched him making way before me, in the dark, and couldn't help thinking he was the better man of the two, a head and shoulders over me, and a match for any two of my inches.' and then again i brought to mind that harry would be a heavy purse the better of sending me to davy's locker seein we had both been just paid off and got a lot of prize money to boot and at last the real red devil having fairly got me helm a larboard i argified with myself that tom mills would be as well alive with harry holmes's luck in his pocket as he could be dead, and his in Harry Holmes's, not to say nothing of taking one's own part just to keep oneself afloat, if so be Harry let his mind run as mine was running. All this time Harry never gave me no hail, but kept tacking through these cursed rocks, and that and his last words made me doubt him more and more. At last, he stopped nigh where he now lies, and, sitting with his back to that high stone, he calls for my blade to cut the bread and cheese he had got at the village. And while he spoke, I believed he looked glummer and glummer, and that he wanted the blade, the only one between us, for somewhat else than to cut bread and cheese. Though now I don't believe no such thing howsomedever, but then I did. And so, do you see me, Commodore, I lost ballast all of a sudden, and when he stretched out his hand for the blade, hell's fire blazing up in my loverly heart. Here it is, Harry, says I, and I gives it to him in the side, once, twice, in the right place. The sailor's voice, 
hitherto calm though broken and rugged now rose into a high wild cadence and then how we did grapple and sing out to one another ahoy yeho ay till i thought the whole crew of devils answered our hail from the hilltops but i hit you again and again harry before you could master me continued the sailor returning to the corpse and once more taking its hand until at last you struck my old messmate and now nothing remains for tom mills but to man the yard-arm the narrator stood his trial at the ensuing assizes and was executed for this avowed murder of his shipmate jeremiah appearing as a principal witness our story may seem drawn either from imagination or from mere village gossip its chief acts rest however upon the authority of members of the irish bar since risen to high professional eminence and they can even vouch that at least jeremiah asserted the truth of the publican's dream end of section one